0: Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Over the past couple of years, we've seen three purchases of VCT managers. Today, we talk about most recent of these as we get Bevan Duncan of Gresham House back on to talk about their recent acquisition of Mobius. We chat about the motivation and what they hope to achieve. We also discuss the current VCT market with hot recent fundraisings and the interesting investment landscape. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on All Good Podcast Services including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we'd like to welcome back to the podcast Bevan Duncan, who is Managing Director of Strategic Equity at Baronsmead. Welcome back, Bevan.
1: Thank you. It's good to be back.
0: Yes. So last time we had you as a double act or part of a double act. Today, you're flying solo. So for anyone who missed last time, we spoke a lot about your investment methodology and philosophy in episode 17. But today we've got you back for very different reasons because you've been active corporately. So we're going to talk a little about your recent approach to Mobius. But as usual, in case anyone missed episode 17, can you perhaps introduce yourself and tell us how you became involved in VCT Fund Management?
1: Sure. So uh, as you said, my name is Bevan Duncan. I'm a Managing Director within the Strategic Equity at Gresham House. So Gresham House is a Specialist Alternative Asset Manager. It's got a, a real asset division managing forestry, uh, renewable energy and, and social housing sort of funds. Within the strategic equity division, we've got a mix of public equity and private equity uh, sort of capability and funds. And within that, we are long-term managers of the Baronsmead Venture Capital Trusts. I've been working on Mead for the best part of probably that's sort of coming up to sort of 15 years now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much an old hand at it. So you've been involved with Mead. The Baronsmead has been part of Gresham House for how long? Ah, uh, coming up to three years now. So
1: it was a, a spin out of LivingBridge. So we joined uh, sort of Gresham House at the end of 2018. Uh, sort of built the team, uh, invested quite heavily into the technology, and and the Mobius acquisition is sort of an extension and acceleration of that existing plan, which I'm sure we'll come on to.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so it is, is interesting. What is the motivation for actually buying Mobius? Yeah, so like I said, so Gresham
1: House has got a real commitment to investing in sort of high growth, high potential UK SMEs. We see a fantastic opportunity in the market. There's a there's a growing demand for venture capital funding, but also the investment environment we think overall is strong. You've had this sort of disruption of Brexit, you've had the impact of COVID. Uh, and then also just a growing UK ecosystem for small entrepreneurial businesses to access funding and access expertise. So it's a part of the business that we were looking to, to grow. You know, Mobius in particular, you know, another long-standing VCT manager. Uh, they sort of launched their funds in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, so all four of their funds are, are sort of very high performing, consistently high performing. You know, they've got scale. Uh, so, you know, just in the sort of 400 million pounds worth of venture capital funds have come into the Gresham House platform, but sort of really importantly, a bunch of really high quality investors and in, in finance and operational people. And there's a good sort of cultural alignment and investment philosophy alignment between the two businesses. So w- we think combined gives us a sort of really strong market presence. Uh, in this space. And and we think ultimately it will help us sort of continue to deliver really strong returns for our shareholders and, and both the Barrensmead funds and the Mobius funds.
0: Yeah. And one thing that I'm sure will interest a lot of people listening to this podcast because they are thinking about when I want to select a VCT or whatever, I'm looking at the quality of the manager. Here, you've been looking at the quality of the manager. So you talk about being very high quality. How do you look at that? How, do you, how did you assess... What is a high-quality fund manager?
1: Yeah, good, good question. So, so obviously, we we knew the team and we knew the Mobius funds uh, because we're clearly operating in the market, and you know we potentially looked at some of the same deals sort of over the years. So we we looked and did a lot of work assessing the long-term track record of the vehicles You know, we looked at their the sort of investment process uh, and how rigorous and detailed that was uh, and then ultimately we spent a long time with the team so this was an acquisition where the due diligence you know happened over a long period of time sort of 18 months so you know, I think in people based businesses, getting that cultural alignment is absolutely sort of fundamental. So we spent a long time doing that. Uh, and people like Trevor Hope and Clive Austin are two of the partners in Mobius that are coming across along with Mark Wignall and Rob Britton. You know, we, we felt there was a group of people that we could really work well with uh, and build something I think that's quite distinctive and, and value additive in the market.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you look at the performance, you mentioned something about consistency there, because I think one of the concerns that people would have, Mobius, I think, right now is top of the performance tables for generalists. And there's always that element of performance is a mixture of skill and luck. And certainly when someone hits the top of a table, you think, no matter the skill, there's there's a bit of luck in there as well. And how did you sort of think about that?
1: yeah i I, look i think that's right you know there's if you look back over everyone's track record there's always some sort of standout successes where there's a bit of right time right place i think uh, and look, performance will ebb and flow a little bit, but we took to real comfort from looking at the long-term track records of the people and the funds, and then also the consistency of that investment process and the way that's applied. You know the high levels of of sort of challenge and discipline that goes into that investment process. but but also alongside that, you know there's a collective sort of desire and, and ambition to keep evolving. I mean this market is changing. Uh, the early stage investment market, you know, through consolidation of managers, but also just the flow of capital and the amount of sort of uh, small businesses looking for funding. So, you know, we hope, uh, and we've got a plan that through the combination of the businesses, we'll keep developing expertise and capability that will help us continue to deliver those returns over the long term.
0: Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, so so one of the things that seems to come out of this is that this is not a deal that's about synergies, I think. You're not looking to sort of get people together and cut people out and cost, say, this is about getting two teams to work together. How do you anticipate the two teams sort of working together going forward? Is it going to be two separate silos or are you going to bring things together? How's that going to work?
1: Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. This is about bringing two teams together and making further investments and, and part of our sort of thinking around investment cases, Gresham House was to put you know, significant investment into both people and technology. So it's definitely not about sort of cutting costs because we, we think that's sort of counterintuitive. but. We we think to get the synergy uh, of the two investment teams that they need to be combined into one and they need to co-invest alongside each other in the private equity side. So you'll sort of recall the Barrons funds are quite distinctive in the market that they're hybrid VCTs. They've got public and private equity portfolios at scale and Ken Watson and his team manage our AIM portfolio. And we think through a combination of the public and private equity portfolios, which you look over the years, they've had complementary returns profiles, they've had complementary investment rates and divestment, that that delivers a real consistency of return and dividend. So the Barron's Mead Funds pay two dividends each year. You know, the board's targets a, a dividend yield of 7% based on opening NAV, the yield sort of running a bit above that, actually. But, you know, that, that's a key sort of focus for Barron's Mead. The The Mobius funds are a generalist, you know, private equity focused uh, VCTs or venture capital focused VCTs. That'll continue as well. So you'll have different asset mixes and different sort of returns and profile and dividend yields of the funds. But underneath that, the venture capital, private equity investment teams will be merged and will invest on behalf of all six VCTs next year. So, so we think that that's a really important part of of sort of getting the teams together, you know, having you know combined we'll have about 20 23 investment professionals so a really large robust investment platform but with lots of areas of expertise which we think will help us when we go out to the market to win deals and to convince management teams to to take our capital
0: okay yeah so 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 that all sounds good one challenge you this is a in some sense, as I, you I say, well, not in some sense, it is, is a gross deal in terms of growing. One of the challenges I've noticed with Mobius is that they have been an intermittent fundraiser. And part of that is, is in a way is a good thing because they've had really good performance. So they've generated a lot of cash and the pace at which they can reinvest this cash means that they don't or haven't felt the need or, or desire to, to raise money. How does that influence your thoughts about, A, the deal, and B, looking at, you know, is this something you can change with Mobius going forward if you've got a bigger team? or Yeah, so one of the, the sort, of, sort of
1: commercial drivers of the transaction for us was that we think by bringing the two teams together and making further investment, that we can ultimately increase the overall rate of investment. so. Combined, the two teams should be able to invest more than they did sort of stand alone. And already, you know, several days into the sort of integration, we're starting to see opportunities for, for incremental or extra sort of deal flow. So, uh, look, that, that's on the proviso clearly that the quality is still there. that That's obviously sort of fundamental to us. But I think what y- you could potentially see is. similar to Barron's Mead you know, as that early stage portfolio continues to grow and the opportunities that we see continues to grow, that, you know, there'll be more potentially regular fundraisings because there's just a a greater need for capital, but also in that portfolio. So more follow-on investments. So so I think the fundraising and the change in that fundraising dynamic reflects the change in the investment strategy and the capital requirements of the businesses that we're investing in
0: mm-hmm. and one thing that I've always wondered about a little bit related to that is how do you actually decide how much you're going to fundraise in a year because there's, there's sort of you know it is based on historic deployments how, how, how do you figure out how much you can raise and how much you can invest
1: yeah so we obviously take a a sort of forward-looking view when when we assess how much we should be raising, looking at things like the investment rate, both, you know, new opportunities, but also, you know, one of the benefits uh, of the sort of growth investment strategy is that you're investing a good chunk of money each year into the existing portfolio. So I, I will go into 2022, with uh, a number of portfolio companies that i think are going to raise capital that we want to invest in so you know there's embedded deal flow sitting within our portfolio which gives us better visibility on the capital that we're going to require um, and and plus like i said there's, there's strong new deal opportunities coming into our business too so we look at that, we look at the performance of the funds, making sure that that's you know, at the levels that us and our boards would expect. But then we also look at the level of forecast cash uh, that we've got. We do that on a sort of three to four year basis. And we've got a sort of target cash levels that we're trying to manage the funds to over the medium term. That that's, So we build that forecasting, uh, forecast uh, fundraising amount from the bottom up based on those assumptions. <laughs>
0: And has the recent, well, I say recent is a year or two now since we had the introduction of this eighty percent to seventy percent investment ratio. moved up to eighty percent. How much has that influenced or changed what you're doing? Yeah, that, that hasn't had a big impact for for
1: our funds. Um, the investment rate has picked up sort of considerably uh, over the last sort of two to three years for the dynamics that I've sort of described. There is things like a twelve month disregard for you know big exits, mm-hmm. um, which I know does impact some managers. Given the size of our funds, we and and our, the regular dividend payments that we make, we've been able to manage that sort of quite quite neatly to date. So you know clearly VCT compliance is number one uh, mm-hmm. on the agenda. Yes, uh, but but at the moment you know, uh, that's, that's been sort of
0: well managed and mm-hmm. there's not a concern for us. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I've seen one or two other managers who might be a little bit more concerned about it. But in, in one sense, you talk about the supply. Demand at the moment for VCT seems to be... I'm not sure if it's through the roof or or what, but we've had an interesting summer where we've had a a couple of large offers close very quickly. We're about to go into sort of the main part of fundraising. I think you've announced your offer coming up soon. How hot do you think the VCT market is right now?
1: Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting market and it's it's changed considerably over the last few years. You know, traditionally it was extremely busy you know leading up to the tax year so you know the january february march it seems now that that sort of people are coming out earlier uh, and and they're filling up sort of quite quickly and look i think that's probably sort of a combination of the low interest rate environment that we're sort of operating in and and sort of retail investors looking you know for for yields Uh, i think obviously the pension uh, sort of caps and that play into that market too. But but I also think that, you know, retail investors want access to sort of high growth, interesting UK businesses. And, and I think VCTs are, are a fantastic way to get exposure to those companies where you're investing into established portfolios. I mean, the Barron's Mead funds have got over 80 direct investments through our unquoted and quoted portfolios. Um, So really well diversified, strong, growing, uh, well-positioned companies overall that investors can get immediate access to when when they invest. So I think it's a combination of of those factors uh, that are are driving the demand. But let's see how the market plays out. And there's still quite a bit to go on this fundraising year.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the comments I've seen is that this, these secular trends that you spoke about have been in place for a while, but I think there's also possibly a, a cyclical effect in that last year, or, or you know, particularly early 2020, people were sitting on their hands a lot, and last year still turned out to be a relatively you know similar to the year before, but maybe people are a bit more confident now, and some of that sit- stuff that we're sitting on their hands 18 months ago and. So sort of putting keeping the bank, they're now happier to invest. Is that something you're hearing?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you know I think the the speed uh, and strength of which the economy sort of bounced back, albeit you sort of opened the paper this morning there's sort of obviously that's causing a few issues in terms of sort of supply chain um sort of stresses and, and shortages and labor shortages and 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 that's that's clearly you know going to flow down into into some of our businesses but i, I think you know generally where the vcts are targeting and are, are markets with long-term structural growth you know a lot of technology enabled businesses a lot of software businesses which have been sort of really resilient and have actually seen in you know, a growth opportunities and accelerated growth through the, through the past 18 months. So, and, and I think investors are recognizing that. You, if you look at the, the sort of performance of, you know, the top VCT managers over the past 12 months, it's been very strong. So I think that combined with, you know, general sort of return to confidence is meaning that people are, uh, you know, attracted to, to VCTs.
0: Mm. Do you think there's a danger, I mean, you, you, you referred to the previous 12 months, and I, I was looking at the figures last week for performance, and yeah, the last 12 months for a large chunk of the VC market is stellar. Do you think there's a danger of people looking at that and extrapolating, or do you think people are being more sensible?
1: Look, I'd I'd hope that being more sensible. I mean, VCTs are a long-term sort of investment. You know, to get the the tax release, you need to be in for a five-year period, and and we know within the Smith funds, the average hold period is probably closer to eight years, and even within that, a lot of people sort of sell down and then reinvest. So probably sort of longer than that. So. We look at the longer term performance as the yardstick for whether we're delivering for shareholders. You know, within our funds, we do have a, a decent portion of AIM stocks, which, you know, do sort of ebb and flow over the short term, but over the long term have delivered sort of really, really strong results. And our, and our investment strategy is geared to the long term. You know, we're looking to back businesses with those long-term structural growth trends we want to build businesses with long term sustainable competitive advantage not just take advantage of a sort of bubble in the market or some cyclical pricing that that all sort of lines up with us you know taking taking a longer term view it's good to see results in the short term obviously but you know it's over that sort of 3 to 5 year period is where we're looking to get, deliver that consistently strong performance
0: yeah And and the other thing that's sticking with the fundraising scene a little bit more is scale, where when I first got involved in the market a few years ago, 100 million VCT would have been a really big VCT. And now there's, I don't know, probably about half the market's bigger than that. Do you think there's a limit on scale people can, you know, VCTs can get to? Because there aren't quite the economies of scale that you might get in a normal mutual fund.
1: Uh, look, the, the Barron's Bede funds um, are probably just under 500 million at the moment. So the two Barron's venture capital trusts. And and like you said, there's a number of other managers that are a sort of probably similar size and one manager that's sort of substantially bigger. So you, so you do need to put the fundraising targets in the context of the, the, the industry maturing and growing. Uh, so we're going out to raise 50 million. But it's on, you know, close to sort of 500 million pounds worth of NAV, and the 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 sort of investment rate, the running costs, the dividend payments, you know, are significant for for vehicles of that sort of size. But but we do think also that that scale, you know, does bring some quite unique benefits through that portfolio sort of diversification through an ability to follow some of these higher growth businesses for longer. And if you've got less of an asset concentration risk, uh, if you're running bigger funds, some of these uh, knowledge intensive businesses can take quite substantial amounts of VCT capital. Uh, And with bigger funds, you can follow on longer uh, and, and more of those. So we think that's that's an important sort of fact to consider. But also as a manager, I think that scale gives you an opportunity to, to invest in specialist skills. So within Gresham House, we've got a dedicated in-house portfolio talent person. So an individual that just finds non-exec chairs, industry experts, financial people, marketing people to help our portfolios and as as well as technology. So again, we've got an in-house technology operating partner, an individual that uh, ran sort of large parts of Microsoft and their digital transformation team. So he's coming to our business too to help sort of think about technology roadmaps and software development plans. So we think that that scale enables you to, to build you know, capability which will help you convert deals and ultimately Grow the businesses once they're under, once they've taken investment
0: from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting thought because usually when people think about particularly investment funds getting larger, they think almost about diseconomies of scale and and they certainly quoted Mark, you know, it's your ability to perhaps exploit an, an inefficiency or a style becomes a bit more limited. But you're saying you can actually do a bit more. Does that mean that there's a reasons to think that perhaps you could actually perform better if you get bigger.
1: That's definitely the ambition. I mean as you've sort of flagged that the the Mobius funds and the Barrons Mead funds have have performed really strongly over you know three, five, and ten years and since launch. but we, we think there's you know clear opportunities for us to you know invest in technology to help sort of efficiency of the way that we operate. Uh, but also to help us identify high potential companies earlier. So, you know, one of the big challenges that we've got as early stage investors is, is getting information on which parts of the market are really hot and growing and then which businesses within those sort of growth trends are the ones that are outperforming. So we're building a technology platform that's going to use data from LinkedIn, from from press announcements, from Twitter, all this unstructured data combined with things from companies house to basically help us point out which companies are sort of growing faster uh, and allow us to get to those earlier to build a relationship and hopefully you know do a deal off market, which helps generally with with pricing. So that that's one initiative and there's several others that we think you know we're going to sort of embark on, which uh, should improve our competitive advantage, which should ultimately you know, help with the returns for,
0: for shareholders. Presumably the challenge as you sort of uh, uh, effectively allude to is that you it's fine identifying the the hot part of the market, but where you want to identify is is, one, is where the ball's going to, the next part of the market that's going to be hot. Do you think your data can actually help you with that? I think it can definitely give you some indicators, but
1: but I think sort of alongside technology, the other things that are really fundamental to the success of our business is talent and people. Uh, and small businesses, you know, you pick the right sort of sector and, and business model. You know, people are fundamental to the success of that. And one of the attractions for us of doing the Mobius deal was bringing their network and adding to ours. So. If we look at our statistics, the highest converting introducer of deals is our network because it's come from people that we know and trust. They introduce it to us with a, you know, warm introduction and those deals tend to convert better. So that network's really critical to finding, you know, where the, the market's moving to next and the space that we should be focused on, uh, you know, for the next sort of five to ten years.
0: And is that a case of one and one is more than two, or is case of your Mobius and your, your existing network overlaps? So there's a sort of slight dissimilarity.
1: Yeah, look, there's there's no doubt a bit of overlap, but by and large, it's it's synergistic, and and I think you do need to go back and look at the structure of this market. You know, it's it's really high volume. There's a lot of small businesses looking for funding. And, and it's really fragmented. You know, it's not like the mid-market private equity. Most of the deals come through a, a group of big four accountants and some boutiques. You know, Deals are getting introduced from you know, a number of different sources and nationally. So part of the diligence process that we went through looking at Mobius was we looked at the last deals that we'd done and said, had you seen that one? No, we hadn't. Had you seen that one? No, we hadn't. So there's actually very little crossover. Uh, and the deals that both investment teams sort of looked at and bid and on. So we think the market is large enough for us both to operate and to realise those sort of synergies that you talked about.
0: Good, good. And obviously, well, not obviously, I guess, but looking slightly wider into the market as a whole, it seems like the whole market's a bit hot at the moment. Yeah, I've heard the comments about everything's a bubble and maybe there's some more obvious you know more obvious areas such as crypto wherever that might be but do you see how do you see valuations how do you see sort of demand and supply
1: so yeah look I think we're definitely seeing in parts of the market pricing is is very aggressive you know fintech, some of the healthcare businesses that we look at you know pricing versus historic levels uh is is high we obviously tend to steer away from those areas and and we pass up on a lot of deals on the basis that we just can't get a ahead around this sort of valuation relative to the growth rate if something's got real growth momentum and, and we've got good visibility on that growth momentum then you can price it that way but but what i would say is that we are still seeing a good flow of opportunities which are off market so they're not run by advisors those deals take a little bit longer to work up so that's the trade off you do need to work with those management teams for two or three months to get the business ready to take on investments and to get the the growth plan sort of clear with the management teams but typically they are priced sort of less fully Uh, And we've got a number of examples of that happening over the past sort of six months and particularly in the areas of the market that we're investing a lot, where you tend to get a reputation and that sort of becomes a bit of a virtuous circle. I think aligned to that, you know, we are looking at different investment structures. So looking at sort of convertible loan note structures with a yield, so um, getting more essentially downside protection or preferred return into our investment structures to mitigate some of the pricing. But, but Can we get general, a little bit of
0: clarification on the rules for those? Because convertibles used to be really popular and then they kind of got swept away by the rules. To what extent are they allowed in VCTs these days?
1: Yeah, no, they're, they're absolutely allowed convertible structures. That, that's one thing that we do. I'd say predominantly we'd be using more of a preference share structure which is like an equity instrument, but it's it's got a rolled up coupon and sits higher up the capital structure. So it does provide you with a bit of protection, but I think fundamentally we would look at pricing and and growth momentum rather than deal structure to, to generate our return. But it, it's a secondary thing that we consider uh, in, in this market. But I think the message is that the market is big enough that there's enough opportunities that where we do see something with the pricing we can't get a hit around that we can step away from and there's still other opportunities to come at
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and and, and presumably that this all links back in a circular fashion in the sense that if you're raising the right amount of money from investors you don't feel the pressure to deploy at the the wrong price or get money out the door
1: yeah that's right and also, just sort of coming back to the meet funds for, for one minute, we've obviously got you know, AIM investments as well. And that, so that's another sort of avenue for us to invest our capital into that market. And the AIM IPO market has, has picked up a bit, uh, and there's been several IPOs that we've participated in this year. But also, we did see the benefits of having public and private You know in the the sort of summer and second half of last year where a number of existing aim portfolio companies that performed well but wanted further capital to sort of fund future growth and the market sort of encouraged more businesses to raise money early we were able to invest into those companies again on quite sort of beneficial prices uh, given the overall market sentiment and those companies have performed well for us so We think having that public-private investing in both new and existing portfolio companies gives us multiple ways to to invest into this market.
0: And you sort of hinted a few minutes ago about areas of things you like and whatever. What sort of themes do you see as particularly relevant right now for investing?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to sort of ignore this sort of huge shift to e-commerce models. You know, and it's not just sort of e-commerce, I think, aligned to that. It's it's e-commerce models that deliver high levels of personalization. So you know, targeting a specific niche and doing it better than the or the competitors, but also using you know, print-on-demand technology. So a good example would be we invested in a business called yappy.com, which provides personalized products for pets, so dogs and cats. It was growing extremely strongly post, uh, sorry, pre COVID, but has obviously really sort of accelerated during and and coming out of this sort of lockdown. So, those types of businesses, uh, we did actually at the end of last year sort of look at a lot of those consumer-facing brands, and it was it was a little bit difficult at times to one unpick which ones were gonna have sustainable growth because so many of them just had an explosion in demand through COVID because everything was locked down. So what we actually did is we invested in several software businesses that provide services into the e-commerce market. So, you know, playing the trend at a macro level, thinking there's gonna be all these direct consumer brands. Some of them are gonna win some of them aren't going to win, but actually the software and service providers are gonna be supporting across that customer base. So we invested in a business called Patchworks and another business called Scurry. Scurry provides uh, logistics management software for e-commerce businesses. uh, And Scurry provides a software that connects all the different systems that an e-commerce business uses from warehouse management to CRM so you know that was a way of us sort of leveraging our expertise at a time when you know we, when we were looking at some of the sort of potentially higher growth direct to consumer businesses but you know a bit of uncertainty about how sustainable that demand was so, so that, that, that's one area i think there's definitely a lot of sort of digitization uh, and technology driving process efficiency and improvements in in customer experience and data providers. So we invested money into a business called Airfinity uh, that provides data services on sort of respiratory uh, conditions, so primarily COVID, so it takes structured and unstructured data and uses predictive analytics to help uh, sort of pharma companies, actually government travel companies and bioscience companies to develop product but also to see how effective uh, different sort of vaccinations have been so and that's been another sort of really high growth interesting area for us so that e-commerce and specialist healthcare, where we're seeing quite strong opportunities at the moment.
0: Yeah yeah I, I, I guess both of those are, are sort of trends that we've seen over the last sort of eighty months. Do you think we're kind of in a post-pandemic world for your investment process or is the pandemic still part of your thinking?
1: It's still absolutely part of our thinking. Um, And and actually, you know, how the management teams sort of reacted to COVID and the shocks that they're through at their business and and how how the business is traded is actually a, a sort of really useful due diligence tool, actually. So going back and looking at that, sort of informs you know our view on the company but you know we we still think that the market is going to continue to evolve and change you know i, I don't think you know despite the vaccinations sort of being rolled out and and the market starting to open up we, we still think there's going to be more sort of volatility and uncertainty as we come out you know of uh, of that and the economic recovery sort of continues so we're absolutely looking for where those, you know, third order, third, fourth order effects could come from, and how that could impact our investment sort of strategy.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that I guess, you know, a further lockdown or whatever is one big risk. What other big risks do you see out there? Because we're seeing a lot of headlines about China, but that, that that, you know, to what extent does that really impact the sort of markets that you and I are sort of looking at here?
1: Yeah, I think. It- as we sort of found through the pandemic, I think that you know China is such a huge provider of raw materials for for lots of different businesses. and 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 supply chain risk is clearly something we think about, but it's it's less of a feature for technology and software businesses. I, I think you know one of the big challenges is sort of availability of talent and specialist skills uh, in the markets that we are operating. That and and obviously post sort of Brexit, you know, in some sectors that's become a bigger challenge. So, you know, we we do think through with our businesses, you know, how how they're going to operationally grow. It's it's all well and good to have strong demand drivers, but you need to be able to fulfil that business and and deliver good customer service. So, you know, we do look a lot at you know, can we get that engineering capability. You know, can we get those uh, sort of systems architects and those data analysts? And in what areas can we do that? So, while it's not a sort of specific sort of macro risk, uh, I think the this sort of talent market is something that we're thinking a lot about.
0: Mm-hmm. And and how how are you thinking about that? Because obviously, we, we we're seeing lots of headlines about, say, lorry drivers right now, but. Systems architects aren't hitting the headlines. Is there a shortage? Is there, you know, if, if you if you know where to look, you can find them. What's? Yeah, I,
1: I think I think there's diff. they're definitely more demand, and you're seeing wage inflation coming off the back of that. And you know, we've started building that into our financial forecasts more explicitly, as well as also what we can do on pricing, which is always an opportunity, like pricing a product for for our businesses, but. So I think there's a combination of you know, and and the pandemic sort of proven this that you can work remotely. So it's where are you sourcing your talent from? You know, it doesn't naturally have to be where the business is based now. Uh, but also, I think aligned to that, it's you know working with our companies to define why they're a good employer, and that's not just sort of salary and bonuses. Mm-hmm. It's looking at the whole employee proposition. You know, in a really competitive talent market, and you know, having policies and uh, and articulating those to be more attractive to prospective uh, employees is is quite important and can sort of sway uh, an individual's decision to join you or not. So we're getting down into that level with our businesses.
0: Yeah. So, so you think that the sort of business, you know, companies often say flexible working as opposed to you've got to come into the office? On are, are one simple thing, I. Think, I are they they're going to be more attractive to employees? I, I think so. I think
1: that's one element of it. But I think companies that have got a clear purpose, uh, that have got, you know, strong ESG credentials that is quite important for a lot of people. And, and incentivisation, you know, is that through option, um, sort of pot. But also businesses that are innovating and growing, I think, are attractive. So, you know, we look across all that, that sort of spectrum of things that could attract people. But that, that's definitely moved up the agenda for us over the
0: past 18 months. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting. That's definitely interesting. So what I'd like to do now is move into our standard questions. Of course, you've been on before. So... You've already answered quite a few of these, but so but we've got a couple that we'll bring back to you. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why did you make it?
1: So I, I talked about it a bit before. So Airfinity, mm-hmm. so the data and uh, analytics and insight platform. And, you know, we, we think the the respiratory you know, disease market or virus market is, is something that is going to... Be a feature uh, of the economy and, and the health system for, for a long time. You know, we're we're working our way through the first sort of immunization or vaccination programs on COVID. You know, there's going to be ultimately other sort of variants and, and things that sort of pop up. So this has put this on the radar. And this business provides, you know, real-time analytics and insight on how how this is impacting across multiple geographies and verticals. So as well as sort of predictive analytics. So we're back to a really talented entrepreneur that that has done a fantastic job to get the business to this stage. And and we think there's a big opportunity to build a global sort of data and analytics business that sort of really plays into these key
0: themes. So last time you suggested a very good book. Do you have any more books that you'd like to throw at us? Yeah, so
1: one of my sort of all-time favourites, and it's probably pretty obvious, obviously being from New Zealand, I'm going to pick a a book that's got some sort of association with the All Blacks. So it's it's a book called Legacy by uh, an individual called James Kerr that spent time with the All Blacks and really understood the culture and and the way that 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 team sort of operated but it's got really strong crossover into business and actually your own sort of personal development and it talks a lot about the real power of, of building alignment you know within teams but also a sort of personal responsibility on individuals to you know to do their job better and in the all Blacks context it's about leaving the jersey in a better place than you found it so you, you are picking up on a long legacy of the team and your job is to innovate, to work hard, that you leave it in a better position that you found it. And it's the sort of better people make better All Blacks. And you know, in a business environment, if you get a group of people that are really aligned, that feel an obligation to deliver to their shareholders and clients, but they've got an openness and an ambition to innovate and do things differently, that's quite a powerful combination.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that that would be interesting because it's it's one of these things, almost an anomaly in, in a sense the All Blacks in a country of four million people dominate rugby or, or or are there or thereabouts for such a long period of time. You sort of wonder there must be something that they're doing that's a bit different.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I think you know, a lot of it is around focus. The The whole country is, you know, everyone's an all-black fan. Uh, and, and the national team and the performance of the national team is sort of fundamental to the national psyche, but also to business. Um, so I, I think there is, you know, crossover into business about, you know, what are the things that we, we really want to excel at? You know, it's got a real performance environment, which is quite self-policing which is interesting for a, for an individual working in an investment house so that the team sets the standards. And I think that's that's sort of quite important. But no, it's definitely definitely worth the read. I think everyone that I've recommended it to has taken. Two or three, things, two or three things away from it, and into their, their business career too.
0: Well, it's not the sort of thing I usually read, so I'm definitely open to to that. So I shall add it to my list. Um, get it for Christmas or something.
1: <laughs> good to hear.
0: So, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Gresham House, where should they go? So the Gresham House
1: website has got a lot of sort of good information. Uh, that will also take you through to the Barons Mead VCT's website. It's so at greshamhouse.com and then through into sort of Barons Mead and, and the Mobius funds will be loaded up on there as well.
0: Okay, we'll post links to those in the show notes. Otherwise, thank you very much for coming back on today, Bevan. It's been great to get an update.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been good to chat.
0: So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanco.com. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you soon.